Dear Father, you have been so gracious to Oak Hill Bible Church over the years, 30 years now that we've met in this place, Father, and in this city. Um, many of us have joined in the years since that start. But, Father, there are still a few who've been here from the beginning, which is itself, Father, testimony. Testimony of faithfulness, of diligence, a testimony of uh, how we are called and held to you by grace. And, Lord, I thank you that we can be ministering here in this way. I know, Father, there is uh, so much more we would like to do. Our hearts yearn to reach people with the word and with the truth of the scriptures and the gospel and to introduce another generation to Christ. We rest in you for those things, Father. We know that it is your skill, your word, your power, your spirit that makes that introduction possible. But we also know, Father, you desire to work through those whom you've called. For that is the reason you've left us here for a time in the world as your ambassador. And, Lord, that has been the mission of this church for 30 years. And, Father, we know we haven't always done it well, for we are men and women who are weak and, and have our limits. But that's the glory that you deserve, Father. That's why you choose to work through the weak things. Because in that way, Father, your strength is so much more evident. Thank you, Father, that you've chosen to work through us. And yet, Father, we desire to do far more than we've done. And in the years that remain before your Lord returns, our Lord returns, Father, I pray that you would continue to inspire in each of us a desire to serve, to represent you well, both in who we are and what we say. May this... Uh, chance to study in your word again this morning be just another step along that path of preparation and encouragement of counsel and guidance so that we would be useful to you in that work i pray this in jesus name amen well as i said we're approaching the end of the very important letter the letter of hebrews and we're in the final chapter if you haven't looked ahead you'll notice you're in the final chapter of this book of this letter this final chapter is a place for the author to issue a series of exhortations to us the exhortations are examples of how the church is to fulfill the instructions that he gave at the very end of the last chapter when he finished the fifth warning in this letter, the warning to those who would fail to understand the, the importance, the seriousness of serving a living God. Let's look real quickly at the very end of verse 28 and 29 of chapter 12, just reminding ourselves here of how he ended that warning. He said in verse 28, Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As we saw back in chapter 10, remember in chapter 10 he had a series of these let us commands. I call them the let us commands for that reason. And here again he repeats one. He says, let us render a life of service to God as a show of gratitude for his love shown to us. This is the basis on which all Christians work in service to God. The unbelieving pagan world has the relationship backward from the way it's presented here in Scripture. From an unbeliever's point of view, you work to earn the favor of God so that you would be, quote, saved or brought into his presence. Works theology. But the Scriptures teach exactly the opposite. That we come into favor with God by his grace, by his extending of mercy, not because of our works, but because of his love for us through Christ. Now, having that relationship, having been saved, now the obligation is to work in service to God in gratitude of what he has done. As you saw 
at the end of verse 28 and 29, the writer makes very clear that we are to give or offer to God acceptable service. And acceptable, of course, implies from his point of view, not from ours, what he deems acceptable. And we do so in reverence, the expected thing we would do for God who has saved us. This sounds a lot like what Paul says in Romans 12. You might remember the verse I'm thinking of, verses 1 and 2, chapter 12, where Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a holy and acceptable sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. Throughout Scripture, you'll see this. Christians are commanded to establish our life's priorities based on a recognition that we owe God everything. That's why we do works. That's why the New Testament author's favorite Greek word in reference to a Christian and our relationship to the Lord is doulos in Greek, which is the word for slave. Why is it that we're called slaves over and over and over again in Scripture? It is because Christ is our master and he commands us and he has charge over us. If we choose to live in obedience to him, we're going to discover, as Scripture tells us, that his burden is light, that our service to him is one of joy. But nonetheless, it's still an obligation. There is no doubt that our relationship in Christ in faith brings these obligations and these expectations. So I want to emphasize this morning that you and I are in a relationship by faith, if we are in that relationship, to a Lord who puts expectations on those who he calls. There's no free lunch once you've been saved. Salvation is a free gift. But once you've been saved, you're placed under the authority of a master who has expectations, standards, by which he will judge us, the scripture says, in the day that we face him. Naturally, as one who would be judged by God, I want to understand what his expectations are. Wouldn't you agree? Do you want to face the moment of judgment with no understanding of what the expectations are going to be coming into that moment? I hope not. That's one of the reasons why we have the bulk of the New Testament. Chapters like Hebrews 13, which are important places for us to spend our time so that on the day of our judgment, we will not go in ignorant. For friends, before the Lord, ignorance is no excuse. Because he's already given us all that we need. Passages like this are passages we need to ponder. I would encourage you to prayerfully reflect upon it when you're not here so that you would have incentive to live in a pleasing way toward the Lord. So let's look at our passage this morning and give our full attention to these exhortations. This morning we're only going to cover the first five verses, but in there is a whole bunch of things that are incredibly contemporary in the church. Look at verse 1 and 2. He says, Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. So now as I introduce this, you already, I hope, get the sense of what to expect here. This chapter is going to read a lot like a list, a list of instructions. And that's, in fact, what it is. They're all loosely related to one another, at least in the sense that they're all self-sacrificial acts of Christian love intended to show God our gratitude for his sacrifice on our behalf. That's really what links them all. Things you would not naturally do. Not in your flesh, not by your own desires, but yet you would do sacrificially when you consider what God has done for you first. He begins with the love of the brethren. You could actually make this first verse a topical sentence for the entire chapter. Show the love of the brethren. Let it continue. This is the overriding theme. The word in Greek for this love of verse one, you can probably guess what it is. Philadelphia. Philadelphia, it's the word that means brotherly love, like the city of the same name. It's not merely love in the sense of showing affection 
or friendship. This idea of what love means in the body is often reduced down to this bare minimum concept. Be nice to people. I show them love in the sense of I have affection for them. I smile at them. I shake their hands on Sunday. And then if they need something, I try to help them. That's the least of it. Brotherly love, Philadelphia, means family. That's what we mean when we say blood is thicker than water. You've heard that phrase, right? It means that if friendship was based strictly on affection, then as soon as the person I'm friends with does anything to, to lose my affection, well, there goes the relationship. But it doesn't work that way in a family, does it? You may not like your earthly brother, your siblings, but you can't change the relationship just because you don't like them. They are always going to be your sibling, like it or not. Well, in a sense, that's what's being implied by Philadelphia. There's a degree of love in the body that is not dependent on whether the person you're looking at in the body is someone you particularly like or that they do what you want. It's not conditional love. You serve brothers or sisters in the body from the point of view of how God sees them, which is that we are all him in the body. And so we're serving him when we serve one another. So you have to make your motive in the body of Christ loving another believer. When I say love is conditional, I say when I feel it, I'll show it. But what the scriptures are asking us to do is to show it whether you feel it or not. Because of the relationship that we all have in Christ. Look how the writer begins verse 1. He doesn't say show the love, feel the love, find the love. He says let it continue. He uses that word because this was the way of the church in the beginning. Go read chapters 1 through 6 of Acts. And look at what the love of the church looked like in its inception as the Spirit brought it into being. He's asking the readers to take what they know of the history of the church and let that continue. Don't let it die out in your body. Our church body, as an example, has not accomplished all the programs that a church might accomplish were it endeavoring to do everything possible. Just our size limits us, of course. But even within our capacity, even within what we have available to us, we're still not doing everything we might want to do. And sometimes that's an opportunity for us. And of course, we may not grow like we hope to grow or the way the world or the church in general appreciates growth, perhaps to its own detriment sometimes. But friends, none of those things are the primary goal of the church. If we grow, we grow. If we have programs, we have programs. If we do good works, we're good for us, at least corporately, I'm saying. But those are not the goals Of the church. What is the primary goal of the church? To show love of Christ to one another, then secondarily to take that love out of the building and show it to the world. But it starts here. It is the standard by which we're going to be measured. Do we love one another? Friends, that if we can't love those within the church, you're fooling yourselves if you think you're going outside this church and loving them for the name of Christ. If you come into this place or in the context of the body whenever you go meet, and you find it difficult, to find affection for those in the body, you're not going to find that for the unbelieving world. Not as a rule. So let the love of the brethren continue is really that foundation upon which everything else in this chapter is possible. So what does it look like to do that? Well, the writer now is going to offer a whole series of examples of what it means to do this thing, that is to show the love of Christ internally as well as externally outside the body. First, he says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Now, in Greek... The writer's instructions are even more specific. He uses the Greek word philozenia. Philozenia is love of strangers. Don't neglect to show love to strangers as well. That's what he's saying. So in verse 1, he says, love of brothers. Verse 2, he says, love of strangers. Now, in this day, in the culture in which this was written, 
Showing love to a stranger was synonymous with offering a traveling individual shelter in your own home. It was a cultural expectation. In fact, it was considered an honor to be able to host someone, a stranger, who might be traveling through the city or town that you lived in and had nowhere to stay, to bring them into your home and to accommodate them was a high honor. You see this reflected in Martha and Mary and Luke, in which Martha is so busy in the kitchen preparing when the Lord of the universe is sitting in her family room. Why is she giving more attention to the kitchen? Well, in the story, obviously, we see Mary's choice to sit at his feet as the preferable choice for obvious reasons. But nonetheless, you don't want to look too harshly at Martha. What she's doing is culturally what she's expected to do. And her anger at her sister is from that cultural expectation. She's looking at Mary saying, you're not helping me do the right thing here, which is to honor my guests by preparing the meal. So that was the expectation. But we've already learned that they were suffering under growing persecution, particularly from the Jewish community in which these churches were centered. As that persecution increased, the believers in the church were more and more likely to encounter someone in their culture, in their community, who did not have the best interests of the church in mind. So enemies increased. And as the enemies increased, the church began to withdraw from that culture. You already can sense why they would do this, right? Before they could show love to a stranger, before someone could come to their door and ask for shelter, they had to worry that they were letting a spy into their home. Maybe this is the person who would report back to the Jewish authorities that this is the home of a Christian, one of these Jews who've gone astray and followed this, quote, false Messiah, Jesus. And so their fear of persecution was leading the church in this day to withdraw to step away from this normal role of showing consideration for strangers and to only show consideration for people they recognized. Oh, you know me. You're in the church. Okay, come on in. I don't know you. Uh, I'm not going to show you any courtesy because I don't want you to see who I really am. The writer's concern here, then, is not merely one of hospitality. Hospitality is important, and I'm not diminishing it. But this verse is too often trotted out as merely an exhortation to be nice to people in your home. And it includes that, but that's... That's the least of it. The very mission of the church is at issue here. The very mission of the church lies in the balance. If you and I are so fearful or mistrusting of unbelievers that you withdraw from them, then you have abdicated your responsibilities as witnesses of Christ. You can't do the mission of the church if you're too worried that somebody might take that the wrong way. Who do you fear more, the Lord or the world? Friends, persecution is a reality. It's always going to be there in some form. So we accept it. We don't like it, but you acknowledge the reality that that's part of the deal that came with your salvation. To live in a world that will hate you just as it hated Christ first. We don't invite it, but neither do we run from it. At least not when we are facing the choice between retreating from persecution or becoming an effective witness in service to God. Sometimes those two things are the choices that we have in front of us. For these believers, that meant opening their doors in love for strangers and in doing so taking the risk that that love could be turned back against them and become a source of persecution. If that's the way that the Lord in his sovereignty chooses to use our act of obedience, then so be it. Then what we've just discovered is it is in his will for us that we be persecuted for faith. And he says in scripture to rejoice for your reward in heaven is great when we are persecuted for his namesake. Now, this letter becomes just incredibly contemporary when you consider the way we also face growing hostility to the church and to the values of the church, to the teaching of the church, to the word of God. 
And so as we open up to unbelievers in our culture today, to strangers, we're going to have a growing sense that their response is not going to be positive. That as we offer our view and our opinion about certain things, or we simply live our life outwardly, we're not going to get the warm, fuzzy approval that we might have otherwise hoped for from the world. If you've seen that in the past, we'll count it as icing on your cake, friends, because that's not the norm, not historically. And I think we're coming back into a more historical norm now. Increasingly, friends, expect to be rejected. Expect to be slandered. Expect to be misjudged, ironically, even by those who would accuse us of intolerance. Expect to be persecuted. Don't invite it. Be, as the scripture says, innocent as doves, but wise as the serpent. Know how to avoid it to the extent you can. But friends, you cannot let the reality of it cause us to withdraw from, quote, strangers. There's no other way around it. You can't let that become an excuse to hide away. We're not supposed to be huddled together in compounds behind fences, thinking ourselves well off because we all believe the same thing inside our compound. Away from scrutiny, away from persecution. You aren't supposed to wall yourself off from the world. Jesus said in John 17, verse 14, to, to the Father in the high priestly prayer of John 17, He said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then notice what Jesus said to the Father regarding His church. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. And of course, what he means is not just merely their physical presence. He's also talking about our way to influence. In that you could almost rewrite his words to say, I do not ask that you put them in compounds. I do not ask that you hide them behind walls. But he adds, but to keep them from the evil one. That's where we get the origins of the phrase that we are in the world, but not of the world. That's really where it comes from is John 17, 15. So when the writer says show love for strangers, what he means is even in the face of persecution, following in Jesus' footsteps, placing your trust in God to accomplish the great things through your sacrifice, through your courage. And then notice how he cites here as his example, Abraham. He cites the moment in Genesis 18 and 19, which we studied here, when Abraham was met by the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, and two of his angels who appeared to Abraham as if just regular, everyday, ordinary strangers traveling through the area. And Abraham, we know from that story, was willing to receive these, quote, men, at his tent for a meal. Now, here's another example, I think, in which this verse, this verse about hospitality is misunderstood. The first misunderstanding is it's not just talking about hospitality. It's talking about our witness, our willingness to show the love of Christ, even when it may not be to our earthly advantage. And then the second half of it. Why? Because you might have the chance to entertain an angel. Well, he says as much, and I'm not saying that's without possibility today, but it's much bigger than that. By the fact that Abraham was willing to go out of his way to entertain strangers, to take a risk, as it were, in that regard, he had an opportunity to see God work in miraculous ways through what followed. He was able to see God work in Sodom. He had the moment before that, of course, in which he had that very impressive prayer, as we think of it today, the petition he did on behalf of his nephew Lot. But the whole experience from front to back, from even being able to sit there and have a meal with three guys that you later realize that wasn't just three guys. The whole of it was an opportunity for Abraham. And if you and I are willing to step out of our comfort zone, take risks, show the love of Christ, even when we know it may be rejected, most of the time it may be rejected. When we're willing to do that as a routine, you're going to see things that you would never have seen otherwise. You're going to watch God influence another person's heart 
through you. And if there is no more special moment in the life of a Christian on earth than to be used by God to bring another to faith. Many of us have had that opportunity at times past. Maybe some of us have never seen that happen. We may have that opportunity. We may witness a miracle of one kind or another in the way God uses our openness. Who knows how much he's prepared to do to accomplish things through us if only we open our door to a stranger. That's the power of verse 2. It's about being available despite the risks. Verse 3, he says, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. This is the third thing on our list. So the first thing on our list was showing love inside the church and taking it outside the church and showing love to the world despite the persecution risk that might come with it. And then next the writer says to the church, remember the prisoners and those who are ill-treated. In both cases, those who are imprisoned and in the case of those who are ill-treated, the emphasis here is believers. The point here is to the believer, to those who are enduring trials as a consequence of their faith and their witness. I'm not saying we can't also minister to those who may be in prison without knowing the Lord. In fact, many ministries have arisen out of that very opportunity. You have a captive audience, as they like to say. It's not a joke. They're captive. But the writer's not attending to that interest here. That's not the focus here. The focus here is on a member of the body suffering for their faith, suffering for who they are. And the writer says, when you have someone in the body of Christ in those circumstances, the entire body needs to see itself as caught up in that suffering. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, he says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We don't sympathize from a distance, in other words which I think is our typical pattern. At least that's the way it often plays out in my life. We, we say nice things. We do pray when we say we'll pray, or at least I hope we do. But that's about it. That's sort of our minimal service requirement. But that's not what Scripture expects. Scripture says that when you see a brother or sister being persecuted, you say to yourself, we are being persecuted. We are experiencing this. And therefore, because it is a collective experience, we therefore minister to them. And it begins with, Prayer, yes, but then it moves to visiting them in their time of distress, comforting them in some material way as best we can, assuring them that they're not alone. And then, friends, when it's our turn to endure that same treatment, it's all going to be reversed and they're going to come to our aid. The point in this, friends, is we give them strength by that ministry to persevere in the face of trials, for that's how they will see their greatest reward. All of us the same. In the face of a trial, it's how you persevere that you earn the Lord's approval. It's not in the mere fact that you endure it. It's in how you endure it. But you endure it so much better when you have friends to help you through it. Would you not agree? So in a sense, you're assisting them in obtaining the approval of Christ by how they endure that trial when you come alongside. Next, the writer says, our proper service to God requires that we live in sexual purity. Verse four, he says, marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. The writer says Christians are to hold the institution of marriage in high honor. As I say, it. the Greek word for honor to Myos, it literally means something very precious, very costly. Imagine in your own life something that you consider the most valuable thing you have, whatever that is. 
The most precious thing you possess. Maybe it's not even an item. Maybe it's a person. How do you treat that thing? How do you treat the thing that you hold in the highest regard in your life? Don't you protect it? Don't you cherish it? Don't you honor it? Take care of it? Well, to God, the institution of marriage is one such thing. Something that he wants us to cherish, honor, hold in high regard, protect, etc. And so, therefore, if we want to serve the Lord in a sacrificial way, in gratitude for what he's done for us, then he says you cherish what he cherishes. You honor what he honors. And in the case of marriage, you honor your marriage or others as well. The requirement to honor the institution of marriage is one that must be shared by all, the writer says. Now, notice how he puts this. He does not say by those who are already in the institution that God created. He's not asking those who are married to do this. He's asking the church to do this. All believers, whether you are in a marriage, yet to be in a marriage, out of a marriage, widowed, doesn't matter. We all have a collective responsibility to honor the institution. So, for example, if you are married, you're obviously under obligation to honor the marriage that you are in until death do you part. If you are yet to be married, you're under obligation to keep pure until the day you enter into marriage. And all Christians, regardless of your marital status, are to respect and honor the marriages of others that exist around you. Notice the writer calls out two different types of sin at the end of verse 4. He first calls out fornication or fornicators, he says, they'll be judged. This is a term that's lost most of its meaning in our culture today. The word almost sounds like one of these ancient biblical terms, like begat. Verily, words no one uses anymore, but if you do use it, if you pull these words out, people know immediately you're either talking about the Bible or a Monty Python skit. Those are the only two ways those words ever get used anymore, right? And this is one of those words. You use the word fornicate, and people are like, oh, you're high and mighty, church person. Where'd you get that word from? It's a reflection of the fact that the concept is all but gone in society. Nobody even thinks about this anymore. The Bible is very clear. The Bible says that any form of sexual activity outside of marriage, that is before marriage, is sin, period. And it's called fornication. That's what the word means. Our culture, of course, has become so accepting of sex apart from marriage that not only is it now acceptable, it's commonplace. It's just what happens now. It's obviously celebrated in the movies and in TV and in books, but our culture has completely lost any sense of shame about it. There's nothing wrong with trying out your marriage partner before you actually get married. In fact, you're better off to do it. In fact, you're foolish if you don't from the way the world sees it. The idea that sexual activity is only possible inside the constraints of marriage is absurd to most people today. If you want to really test how prevalent it is, talk to anybody almost any age these days and ask them what they think about remaining sexually pure until marriage. They might acknowledge it's a possibility or an option, but they'll act like it's a rarity or certainly unusual. But here's the beauty of the word of God. It doesn't change no matter how much we do. It's never going to say anything different than it says right now. And what it says, let's be clear, fornication means taking something you do not have rights to take. According to God, it is never appropriate for a Christian to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage. Anything that is sexually arousing is off limits until you're married. And of course, the world would also tell you that marriage can be redefined. And we can be very clear about that, that we're talking here about a marriage that is a man and a woman, for that is the only kind scripture permits. Christians may never view pornography, whether before or in marriage, for this is defiling the marriage bed. It's licentiousness. 
It's lasciviousness. It's lewdness. It's viewing another person's nakedness, which is itself a sin. Christians may never live together before they are married. And yet, you can go into a church and find many couples of varying age shacking up before they get married. And there's absolutely no concern within the church that this is taking place. Or if there is any, it's held to a secret because we don't want to cause anybody any discomfort. Heaven forbid they might leave if we bring it up. We just tolerate sin in the church. That's a destructive mindset. So in a world that is increasingly holding marriage in contempt and wishing to repurpose the institution to suit sinful desires or to ignore it altogether or to have the benefits of it outside of the institution, that would make our witness as a church even more important concerning what is true on these things, right? We don't have to walk around with our finger in the air lecturing people. I mean, you know that's not going to go over well even if you tried it. That's not the way we witness. Our goal is not to necessarily become politically active on these topics either, though that's certainly within our liberty if we choose to do so. It does require, though, that our own lives reflect this truth. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, how hypocritical for Christians to cry out against, for example, homosexual relationships, which has now become the fight of the day, only to return home to have sex with their live-in lover. On what basis do we have any credibility to make arguments about the purity of marriage or about the sanctity of it or about the word of God when our own life doesn't reflect it? Shack up with a girlfriend or boyfriend gives you no case to make against a homosexual relationship. Sin is sin. The writer says God will judge fornicators. Even for the believer, there's still consequences for those who come to the Lord having not sought to please him by our life. And when we see what those consequences are, we will regret what we did. Our sin will have been forgiven. The judgment for sin will not be ours. But there are still consequences for not serving the God who saved us. And then, secondly, the writer says we can't participate in adultery. Now, adultery, as you probably already know, is the sin of violating the sanctity of marriage, of another's marriage. And, of course, the obvious examples are when one person has sexual activity with a married person who's not their spouse. And that's always wrong. I'm sure you knew that. But you should also remember it does grave danger to the witness of the church. How many hearts have been broken in a church when a marriage has been violated by church members? How many times have you seen churches fall because the pastor or some other leader in the church has this public tryst with somebody in the church? How often is it the secretary for some reason? That's why we don't have secretaries in this church. <laughs> there's the issue for the individual. There's the issue for the institution. But there's also this issue for the witness of the church. There's also this broader impact to our effectiveness in a culture who sees us to be just like them. How effective can you and I be in witnessing to something that is different than the culture when we look just like the culture? From their point of view, we're not selling anything different than they already have. Their perspective is we're offering something that we claim is different, but it doesn't impact our life to look any different. They're going to make the obvious conclusion. I already got what you got. There's another form of this that's often overlooked in the church. Don't forget, marriage vows last until death. And so the command to respect the marriage bed continues even after legal divorce, as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians. So you have to respect another's marriage, even to the point of refusing to marry a divorced person. But again, that's not an idea this culture likes, does it? And I would add that's not an idea that the church culture likes much anymore either. But the Bible's teaching is consistent and clear. Only upon the death of a spouse are you released to marry again. And then finally, the writer makes perhaps the most challenging demand, if you haven't heard enough already, verses 5 and 6, he says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. 
so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Looking at the Greek again in verse five, ours says, make sure your character is free from the love of money. But in Greek, it's really living without covetous behavior. Christians are not to tolerate, much less indulge in covetousness. And coveting is not merely jealousy over what someone else has. If you're like me, that's sometimes the way you think of the word. Coveting is, I want what you have. But the concept's much broader than that. It means any sinful wanting. Any sinful wanting. And you can sinfully want for things just in the way that desires for the world's offerings consumes your attention and drives your passion. Just the mere fact that you want to procure something that the world offers so much that it directs your desires in unhealthy and sinful ways, that's coveting. In the broadest sense of it. That's why the Bible positions contentment as the opposite of coveting. Because when you're content, then what you have is enough. But when you covet, you need more. It's the difference between more and enough. On any level, in any area of your life. You can covet relationships, you can covet attention. Three-year-old, four-year-old kids, when the new baby comes along, they're all about coveting. They covet the pacifier, they covet the blanket, they covet mommy's attention. That's coveting. Did I need it? Not until I saw him have it. And so I wanted it. So often in our life, whatever the context is, we actually have enough. You probably, if I'm guessing right now, you probably have enough clothes. You're not going to be naked publicly anytime soon. Your clothes aren't falling off your body. You probably have a car that's good enough. You probably have enough shelter that you're not going to be cold and wet. You probably have enough of almost anything you could name right now upon which your life depends, upon which basic existence is necessary. You have enough. And I'm guessing you're going to have enough for a long time. I'm guessing you won't even run out of what you have for a long time. And I'm the same way. But we go shopping. There's something else out there. It's in this pursuit of more when you have enough that you run the risk of compromising your character, the writer says. That's when your character starts to become at risk. Notice at the end of verse 5, the writer quotes Deuteronomy 31.6, where the Lord promises Israel that he will never desert them nor forsake them. That's what he promises. Why did the writer quote that, of all things? How does he connect that to the thought of coveting versus contentment? Well, he's alluding to the sovereignty of God. He is referencing the fact that God assigns to each What you have. Let's be honest. Not all of us are going to have the same thing. Some of us will have more than others. That's not a problem so long as we're content with wherever God puts us. Since you know that the Lord is kind, you know he's good and he has concern for you. His willingness to save you despite your sin is evidence of that all by itself. Because you know that to be true and you know he always takes care of his people. Well, then think carefully about your station in life. Think carefully about where he has placed you in the greater economic spectrum of the world. That's not an accident. When you understand that God assigns to each of his children a provision that is adequate to our needs, has done so for purposes of his own, that that provision is itself a sign of his faithfulness, in other words, then you know automatically your proper response to that. It has to be contentment. Because if you cannot be content with what God has sovereignly assigned you, what you're suggesting is God didn't know what he was doing. Somehow he got it wrong for you. I know this is what you thought I wanted, God, but if only you understood I had greater expectations. And by the way, I'm not suggesting that we can't have aspirations 
that we can't have goals, that we can't seek things in life. But Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, to Timothy he wrote in verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food, look at his list. This is Paul's list. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Wow. If we have food and covering. And he says, but those who want to get rich, which I think in context would have to be everyone who's not content with food and covering. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. Then he says, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Based on what Paul says, don't devote inordinate time and effort at improving your financial or your material status. And I've qualified that specifically for good reason. Inordinate. This isn't all or nothing. It's degrees, but the degrees matter. Because if we spend too much effort and time trying to make more of what we can in this life, you are potentially redirecting energies away from more important and lasting spiritual pursuits. Like, as Paul says, pursuing righteousness or godliness or faith or love and so on. It's not that having wealth excludes such things. As I said, this is not all or nothing, but it's about opportunity cost. If you ever took economics in high school, right? Opportunity cost. You can't have it all. You can't do it all. There is only so much time in the week. So, for example, the working man, he could elect to spend more time at the job every day, earning more income, or he could take that time and he could devote it to more Bible study, to deepening his relationship with Christ, to fellowship in the body, to prayer, Those things are mutually exclusive because there's only so much time in the day. One of those pursuits is based on the love of money. The other pursuit is based on a love for the Lord. One is driven by a desire for more. One is reflective of contentment. One choice potentially leads to covetousness. The other leads to godliness. On an occasional basis, when our work demands increase, we have to respond. I understand that. I think we all do. But I think by that same token... We all recognize when these things get out of control. The writer isn't asking for us to forego earning a living. Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament to the church in Thessalonica that if we don't work, we don't eat. He doesn't want us to become burdened on someone else. He's simply asking that you don't strive for more than is essential. For in moving beyond the necessary, you distract yourself from the true mission of the church. And this same choice exists for mothers, it exists for children, it exists for students, it exists for single people. This is not unique to the stereotypical working man situation. And in the worst cases, the desire for more leads us to compromising our character. To neglect our responsibilities to our family or to the church, that's where it usually starts. Perhaps we eventually get to the point where we assume some debts we can't pay because we've taken on a desire for more than we can afford. Perhaps we go to the next step of breaking laws like tax returns, or perhaps we cheat our clients, or perhaps we betray the trust of those we love, hiding things we're doing in our family or wherever. Why are we doing these things? Because we aren't content to rely on what the Lord's judgment dictated for us from the beginning. And because we weren't willing to patiently wait to receive our wealth in eternity. 
Verse 6, the writer reminds us from the Psalms that the Lord is our helper. So you have nothing to fear from the world. Friends, if you're sitting here today thinking about security and the like, the Bible is here to tell you that if you feel insecure, and if that insecurity is driving you to hold off retirement one more year and put in just a few more hours in the job every week and, and so on, ask yourself, why do you have that concern? Sometimes we're paying the debts off that we incurred earlier, and that's just a fact of life. Well, you know, sin has consequences, and that's, then that's water under the bridge. But if you still have decisions to make and you still have choices ahead of you, think about this. Is the Lord only going to help you as long as you're working? Does he not have a plan for your retirement? Will he forget you? Will he neglect you? Hasn't he promised you that he'll always meet your needs? There is a condition to that promise. You don't see the fullness of it without doing your part. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew 6:31. He says, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He knows what you need, and he's more than willing and able to provide it. He's asking you to put his priorities first. Do that and trust him for the rest. I wonder how often Christians miss the blessing of seeing the Lord show up in this way, in the way he's promised, because we rob him of that opportunity. I've known men and women who live on the mission field. I have some personal friends who live that way today. By living on the mission field, I don't mean necessarily living in a foreign country, although in some cases they do. But just the fact that they live dependent on others to donate to their life, to support their living as they serve God, where their their income is really a matter of other people's gratitude and, and thanks to God. And some months it goes up and some months it goes down and it's never really a lot. You know people like that, right? We support people like that in this church who have to live daily in this promise. And I mean daily. I mean the money they have in their account might get them through tomorrow with what they know they have to to do. And when I hear these people, first of all, they're always filled with joy. I never feel the stress that I imagine I would feel if I was living under those circumstances. Either they're really good at hiding it or they all go to some school where they're taught how to hide it to the rest of us because I've never seen it. They're realistic. I'm not saying it's Pollyannish. It's a piece there that I don't understand. And then you hear their stories. You've heard some of these? Stories in which they encounter a need they couldn't meet and then just God shows up in an amazing way and meets it unexpectedly just at the last minute and they had no idea how it was going to be done before it happened. I have a friend who had so many of those stories I started to wonder if he ever had a normal day in his life. There's a gentleman who's going to be leading the Israel trip that I'm taking. A man who grew up Jewish, became a Christian, has a wonderful ministry in San Antonio built around teaching the Bible from a Jewish perspective. And he went to seminary full-time seminary, three years, two years, whatever it was. And he had no money. And his parents had disowned him because he had come to faith as a Christian. He literally had no support. He made a convicted decision going into the seminary, and he tells this in his testimony, in which he needed however many thousands of dollars a year, not only for the school but for his living expenses. And he had no money to pay for any of it. But he made a decision going in. He would tell not a single human being of his need. Not any human being on earth knew of what he needed. And he did that fully convinced that God was going to take care of this need because God had called him to go. And as his testimony goes, it's just one of these amazing days after amazing days. Checks in the mail from people he doesn't know. How do they even know where to send it? How do they even know he existed? Grants that came through when he never applied. Thing after thing after thing that just kept him going all the way through school. That's a walk of faith. I mean, by definition, he had no expectations except that God would find a way. Do you think you see that if you take out $250,000 in student debt? 
I'm exaggerating. Actually, these days, I'm probably not exaggerating much anymore. If you feel convicted to do something and God's calling you to do it and you know he's capable of providing, you watch him show up in miraculous ways when you don't act beyond your means, when you let God drive that process. Our service of gratitude to the Lord brings with it an expectation that we set aside our desires so that we would pursue his, which means pursuing eternal wealth over earthly wealth. Working hard, yeah, but making your goal righteousness and pursuing that. Test your heart. Are you content or just convicted? Have you made your life the pursuit of the world? Is your character at risk because of that? Is the opportunity cost for your way of life so great that you may be sacrificing eternal gain for some earthly goal? Let's consider these things carefully in days to come as we pray. Heavenly Father, you wrote this letter through this man so that we would hear these words. And I'm sure, Father, you didn't write them to affirm us. But neither to discourage us either. But rather, Father, I suspect, as, as I'm sure is evident to any who read it, that you provided us this instruction so that we would reflect soberly on what it means to serve a living and holy God who is an all-consuming fire. A God who, as you describe yourself in chapter 12, you're a God in which it's terrifying to fall into your hands. That is, if we come to you as one who's been disobedient and has turned a blind eye to your word and to your grace and mercy. Let us not be that person, Father. Let us be the one who, through conviction, is made more like you. And by the instruction of your word, is brought into line with your will and who seeks to please you. But, Lord, also, by your same word, we have encouragement to know that you who began a good work in this is faithful to complete it in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we look forward to that day, Father, in which you put aside all the weaknesses that we now bear in our body. And you've meanwhile given us your spirit so that we have the strength and the counsel to do the right things now. Don't let us believe the lie that says we can't help ourselves. Don't let us give in to the enemy who would say that we're, we're just the way we are. Father, we are who we are both by Adam, but also by your grace. Your grace will triumph over the sins that Adam gave us, and one day we will be like you. Give us the heart and the courage to take steps in that direction even now as we await our day of glory. And bring us back here, Father, to continue our study in your timing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.